Scripture today is Matthew 5, 27 to 32, as we continue our series, Blessed Be the Merciful, Our Journey with the Messiah. These are Jesus' words, verse 27, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which is found in Exodus, Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her certificate of divorce. Must give her a certificate of divorce. That's from Deuteronomy 24. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who has married a divorced woman commits adultery that's god's word for us today and uh, we are heading into the topic of sex lust divorce even and uh, I, I think a lot of times when you hear in churches that you you hit in the conversations about sex and sexuality there's a need for a pg-13 disclaimer and we do of course want to give the freedom for parents to have the conversations with sex and their kids. But we also believe, or sex and their kids first, uh, but we also believe that this should be a conversation we do have in the church. Um, or maybe an opportunity to continue a conversation with your kids. So all that being said, we're talking about sex. And as we survey this topic, and we it is a survey, lust and shame, as well as marriage and divorce, it's going to be a series of interconnected homilies, i.e. short messages. That said, my intent this morning is not to weigh into the important and such multifaceted realities as sexual orientation, uh, sociopolitical tensions that exist within that conversation, conversations about transgenderism, all those that exist um, in our world and, and very much can exist within our church. I, I am not going to be weighing in on those important conversations. Um, saying that from the outset, our leadership, as I said in the past, maintains a traditional view of sex and marriage, while our church and leadership want to create space for all walks to encounter the living God, to meet Jesus, to and, and to have opportunity to walk with Jesus. Another area I just feel like naming off the cuff is we're not going to name just how far, quote-unquote, you can go um, with somebody physically. I mean, I, I really am interested in those topics and these topics, but um, we're just not going to be naming like, hey, this is what you can and can't do outside the covenant of marriage. Those are important conversations as well that we need to have with Jesus and one another. We just don't have the space for that, especially since we need to lay the groundwork for uh, sexuality, spirituality, and wholeness that God wants for us and for each person that God and uh, we encounter. And that's my hope and prayer for today is wholeness. So I, with that, I want to begin with some discussion questions, make this a dialogue. Um, when you were growing up, how did your family or elders or guardians handle uh, conversations about sex, the, the birds and the bees, so to speak? Uh, that's our family of origin, that's a psychological term, our, our primary influences. How do they handle conversations with sex? And I don't wanna relegate it just to families. I also want us to consider our poo and our chew. If our foo is our family of origin, our poo and our chew would be our pastors and pulpits of origin and churches of origin. Our poo chew. 
uh, what were the spoken or unspoken messages from the church regarding sexuality that's influenced the way that you have seen this issue? And then, obviously, it's not just our poochu or our foo, it's also our ku crew, our ku crew, which is our culture of origin and close relationships of origin. What are the spoken and unspoken messages regarding uh, uh, from your surrounding cultures? That's your social media feeds, your close relationships, your close circles regarding sexuality that has influenced the way you see this issue. And I, I don't just take this as like, what do you think culture out there saying? What is your intersection with culture saying with sexuality? What are your Facebook and Instagram feeds telling you about sex and sexuality? Lastly, after our foo, poochu, ku crew, there's you. How have these approaches shaped your view of sexuality? It's probably worthy taking a couple of minutes to have this conversation. If you're listening online, I would just pause it and consider it. Maybe you're in the car with somebody, talk to them about it. Okay, so um, my story, my parents didn't have much uh, conversations with me regarding sex. We were given a picture book with explanations about puberty and, and some commentary on sex, but it was a fairly quiet conversation in the Kelly household. Uh, some other influences, like so many, at a young age, I was exposed to pornography through some neighborhood kids, but by God's grace, I did not get overly addicted to it, as it was not readily available in the home. Didn't have much cable TV or anything of the sort. Um, I did have some friends in high school who were excessively sexually active. I just will say sexually active and in many ways excessively, although those two, that might seem redundant. Um, but I think just how excessive it was, was a, a turnoff for me. And it made me uh, hold on to a sense that I really wanted to wait for love. And I think my Catholic upbringing wanted to save it for marriage. But as time passed, in my early 20s, partying, loneliness got the better of me. And sexual addiction, toxic relationships, and subsequent premarital sex uh, became an issue. It was an issue in that uh, tumultuous season. And uh, through some amazing community in the church, I, uh, I, I sobered up, so to speak, had a, had a long season of just uh, not acting out, engaging in healthy relationships, took some time off from dating. And uh, for the most part, I was sobered up when I started dating Courtney, who was now my wife, and we did, quote unquote, save ourselves for marriage. We didn't have um, sex or general intercourse. However, she and I struggled on the physical side, which led to trust issues on the marital side. And what I can say about that is um, she and I, we've been married for almost 12 years. Has it been 12 years? Oh, yeah, almost almost 12 years. And we have not mastered sex. It requires work, but it is an area, having worked through the trust issues, good counseling, where we have a deeper trust in one another and, and are faithful to one another. And it deepens each and every year. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And as I consider this conversation about sex, lust, and fantasy, it is an area in my life where I have received miraculous healing. Miraculous healing. I, I kind of glossed over it quickly, but um, yeah, just God has brought healing. At the same time, it's an area in my life that requires work. It requires work. And um, this is what I mentioned last week in this conversation as we step into the practical application of the Sermon on the Mount, post-Beatitudes, post-being salt and light, 
well, actually, these are ways to be salt and light, is um, we want to be safe people when it comes to anger, when it comes to honesty, generosity, pride, competition, and of course, sex, sexuality, and lust. We want to be a safe, I want to be a safe person, a pastor, safe friend, safe coach, safe dad and husband. And it requires work, vulnerability, confession, and accountability. This means for me personally, if I haven't, even if I haven't acted out for a, a a certain long amount of time there are still moments where we can be triggered meetings with others that um, can make our mind wander there's media lust clickbait um, that is designed to make you act out to lust to fantasize and of course there's all memories euphoric recall that we can escape to all that are triggering and for me it's to name those before God and many times to confess that before others. And this is why that, even that first exercise we did where we were naming our poo, our, our foo, our poochu, and our coo crew, all of our influences, we need to admit the lies, admit the false um, realities around us in order to take hold of truth. We need to understand what are our influences and what is false about those influences and how do they shape us, what is true, and how do we move forward together so that we can be safe people, safe for the sake of others, to see one another as sisters and brothers who would just want to be seen that way, bright, gentle, warm, sometimes sad, sometimes quiet, all the times just Andy, all the times just Courtney, all the times just Jess, just Larry. Am I a safe person? Am I a safe person that celebrates you just being you? You're not an object, not a goddess or god. You're just you. Am I a safe person with myself? Am I a safe person with myself? As we consider this conversation, uh, we have to understand we're talking about lust and fantasizing in the body. And it is a multifaceted conversation. And body issues are a part of this conversation. It's the way that we view ourselves physically our vanities our perfected tendencies subsequent body shame for me it's looking at myself and thinking through the years of acne i have kind of a big head always being too skinny built like a tube of toothpaste but then having a more of a chubby season facial injuries reconstruction my tooth front teeth even this season when i look in the mirror they're dying and they're yellow and they're brown and i don't like how that looks and how we view ourselves physically is, again, part of this multifaceted conversation. We want to be safe with how we view ourselves and our bodies. The truth is, when it comes to this conversation, sex and sexuality in our broken world, every body has a story. Every body has a story. Everybody is carrying something. Everybody is carrying shame. Shame from addictions, shame from what we've done, shame from things that have been done to us. I don't want to ignore that aspect of the conversation. The abuse that we've received, the hurt that we've taken in. Shame from how we view others, how we view ourselves and how others view us. Shame from the bathroom mirror and society's statements of what it should reflect, that bathroom mirror. Everybody has a story. Everybody carries a certain weight of pain and shame, shame and pain as it pertains to the conversation as sex and sexuality. 
So the question we're tackling today in this series of interconnected homilies is how do we at Water's Edge, how do we begin to experience wholeness in sex and sexuality? How do we experience wholeness in this conversation? And uh, thus we enter into our first homily. And from the outset, I want to note that there are a lot of great resources. And this week I am borrowing heavily heavily from Rich Volotis's The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, it's sub, subline is five transformative values to root us in the way of Jesus. And one of those five is our sexuality. Um, Rich Volotis, he's a pastor uh, in Queens at New Life Fellowship. Uh, not Queens, I think it's Brooklyn actually. And he does a lot of work with emotionally healthy spiritual, spirituality. I've met Rich before. If you told him Andy says hi, he probably wouldn't know who I was. That's okay, he's brilliant. He's also very approachable. And having just read a few chapters of his books as a recommendation, I just want to note that he and his uh, team, really he laid, uh, gave a lot of groundwork for the conversation today. And sure, it may not be new information, but there's great vocabulary, I think, for today's day and age. It's very um, translatable. So I just want to give uh, Rich a shout out now. And you can look him up on Instagram, Rich Velotis. I don't really know the exact Instagram. But um Again, the book is A Deeply Formed Life, and the question for today is how do we begin to experience wholeness and sexuality? And um, as Rich does, we define a few terms. Um, what is sexuality? How does it pertain to our spirituality and our Christian spirituality, for that matter? And I'm going to be using the following edition, uh, definitions rather, from Deb Hirsch. She's the author of Redeeming Sex, and she says, as we define spirituality, that spirituality can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves and attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. Beyond that is the inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other, that is God. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by God on a physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. That is spirituality. Sexuality can be defined and can be described as a deep, desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves, an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it's a longing to know and be known by other people on a physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. Again, that's Deb Hirsch. And um, sexual wholeness, uh, as Rich Velotis notes, as he looks at those two definitions that I'm noting as well, is sexual wholeness is a prayerful integration, the marriage of our spirituality and sexuality resulting in deep, satisfying relationships with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and, and leads to healthy bonding. As we back up, that word sex comes from the Latin word sicari, which means to be cut off. And in short, it, it's reminiscent of this idea that we know that we're cut off. We know that we're cut off from God and others and, and therefore want to be reconnected. God's designed us as sexual beings. A, a great reference or resource for that is The Holy Longing by Ronald Rollsheiser. Um, to be sexual being is to live in close and undefended, undefended community with people who love you just for who you are. A community where you can share all your life, of course, your highs and your lows, your wins and your losses. And of course, that leads to more questions, which is good. This is part of the conversation. So our questions lead us to um, our first point today. As we experience wholeness and sex and sexuality, how do we do that? Well, we first need to understand the goodness and, I, I put here, historical confusion 
around sex and sexuality. And we did read Matthew 5. We're actually going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. Um, before we get into the words of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand sex and sexuality and God's creative intent, how it is good. We don't want to jump to the fallenness of it, the Genesis 3, before we understand the Genesis 1 and 2. And whenever we deal with sin, whenever we deal with others, we first want to start from a point of Genesis 1 and 2, God's creative intent, that we're made good in God's image. To understand the fallenness of sin, and of course, in this conversation of sex, sex and sexuality, the fallenness of sex. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2.24 says, This is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, <clears throat> and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. So theologian Marva Don, she notes from these two chapters, the first two pages of the Bible, that we are presented with two visions of sexuality that often get confused in our culture. One is this social sexuality, and the second is genital sexuality. The first is social sexuality, Genesis 1, the ways that we relate to one another in all creation that reflect the interdependentality, interdependentality, interdependentality interdependence-ality of the triune God. We are made for one another. Don says that human beings are specially created to image God, and a significant part of that imaging is fellowship. God is one God who is also a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and the longing for one another, for community, is written into our being. Our longings and even our urges uh, can be satisfied with uh, our God, who is one and yet communal, as well as God's extended family, where Christ is the head of the church. That's social sexuality. Genital sexuality is introduced to us in Genesis 2.24. It describes where a man leaves his, uh, his own family to unite with his wife in covenantal union, a union established by God. Genital sexuality is a covenant symbol of that reality. It's, it's deeply sacramental. It's a sacrament within marriage. And Philip Yancey says this, he's a writer of Designer Sex, the true glory of sex, as revealed in scriptural, Scripture, is an emotional, spiritual, and physical self-giving that co-joins two people into one. Genital sex is a natural God-given response to someone who covenants, sacrifices, and remains faithful. It's the cement of naked vulnerability of being one with someone who's not going to leave the next morning. So, what's the confusion? What's the confusion I talked about, understanding the historical confusion? Well, there's particularly, and you hear this in many circles, three views with how um, sex has been historically categorized. Two of them, which is a miscategorization. And um, I've heard it categorized as different ways that some categorize sex as gross, sex is a, a, a god or an idol, and then sex as a gift. And those are great. I, Recently, I've been drawn to what uh, Catholic author and speaker Christopher Wright delineates. Um, he's, he, he likens sex to this idea of starvation, very um, repressed. Sex is fast food, 
fast food like Wendy's or Popeyes or McDonald's. There is, of course, um, lastly, sex is a banquet. Uh, sex is starvation. Um, this has predominantly been conveyed, unfortunately, by the church that sex is bad. Our urges are evil and should be repressed. Some early pioneers of this was Origen, who, who's historically, this is not proven, said to have castrated himself because of his issues with lust. Of course, um, one of the greatest sociologists and theologians of, of church history is Augustine, who, who immensely struggled with lust if you read his confessions. And um, a lot of the messages that have been conveyed is that if you have an addiction or even a, an urge, you need to repent. And this promotes somewhat of a white knuckling, just try to stop it type of sexuality, which leads to many people acting out immensely. And tragically, um, it buries our very real desire, which is meant to take us to God. That's starvation. Yeah, um, and if uh, starvation is one view, another view is fast food. This worldview predominantly belongs to our world and our culture. Traditionally, I've heard uh, teachers describe this as sex is appetite. If it feels good, it is good, therefore take it. Um, it's something that needs to be just fed in a sense. And if starvation is repressive, this fast food diet is, is really reductionistic. And, and just like fast food, after you, it does taste good, um, but in the moment, but it, the empty calories and unhealthy processed ingredients makes your stomach ache, your soul ache. And I, I think when I talk about um, sex is fast food and culture, I think even saying that is an appetite can be fairly a reductionistic statement. Um, there are not a lot of songs written about um, Big Macs or Popeye's four-piece spicy chicken. I love it. But there are a lot of songs celebrating sex. And I think culture has not a complete reduction view of sex, but um, they have a high view of sex. But... Um, what much of culture is unaware of is their deep longing for social sexuality, to be connected to others. And because the culture is unaware of that ability that we can have our, our needs and our longings met within community, uh, they're not aware of it. There's a fallen choice to dangerously fill the void in the most vulnerable way through genital sexuality, to meet a need that does not require us to take off our clothes. And, and Marva Dawn, that theologian, has a word for churches. She's convinced, I am convinced, she says, that if the church could provide more affection and care for persons, many would be less likely to falsely turn to genital sexual expression for the social support that they need. And bring it home at Water's Edge, if this is a safe place um, to share and to essentially be spiritually vulnerable, to be spiritually undefended and naked and without shame, uh, we, we, we can help others. We can prevent uh, the physical act of uncovenantal sex, whether that's premarital sex, affairs, fantasy, subsequent acting out, masturbation. It would be less of an issue. Uh, sex is starvation. Sex is fast food. And uh, sex is designed to be a banquet. It is designed to be a banquet. Genital sex is a powerful gift that we give to express our entire bodies within the full covenantal love of a marital union. A covenant given by God for the sake of God, each other, and even others outside of our home. When I say that, <clears throat> your marriage and the general sex, which is a sacramental reality, is designed to deepen your bond with another so that you can be safe people for others who enter into your home.
Let's just talk about sex and marriage. Through the powerful and creative act, we vulnerably offer ourselves to another mysteriously, to another mysteriously, reflecting the interpenetrative love of the Trinity. That's not my words, that's Rich Velotis. He actually goes on to say that gentle sexuality is not about our bodies colliding, but a self-giving, mutual, indwelling love that points to something beyond ourselves. This is why, and I believe this completely, the powerful and nurturing safeguard for sex is, is marriage. It requires sex, general sex requires a powerful, nurturing safeguard found in marriage. Kings of Leon wrote a song called The Sex is on Fire. And what's interesting is that um, there's some truth about that. Sex is, is, is like a fire. <clears throat> it can serve you. It can keep others warm. It's useful for cooking. It can generate electricity. But fire can also burn and destroy. Marriage provides the fireplace to keep it within its safe confines. If the fire exists outside the fireplace. It can burn the person. It can burn the home. It can burn the neighborhood. And having walked beside and walked after the moral failures of more than one of more than one of a few colleagues and friends, it's evident the ways that unmarital sex has burned individuals, families, and communities alike. Now, does this clear up all the confusion that we have to about sex and sexuality? Of course not. It doesn't. <clears throat> but what it does mean, as we consider sex in both general sexuality and social sexuality, is that. As a church, we need to be a banquet where everybody is invited to the table. Everybody's welcome to bring, be naked and without shame with their questions about this topic. And as marriages, marriages need to be a safe place that cultivates genital sexuality, um, where both feel safe, both feel seen, both feel free to be vulnerable. And from that, marriages need to be a place out of that love to provide a space for others, particularly those who aren't married, to let them know a safe space, not just the church, but our marriages need to serve others. And the problem is, is Genesis 3 and essentially what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. We live in a fallen world and our tendency is to hide from one another, one another whether we're single, married, divorced, widowed. Back to the garden, the man and wife chose to sin, to go against God's command and they heard God walking. And it says it just in Genesis 3, verse 8 and 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. And that's our tendency is to hide when it comes to conversations about really everything. Uh, around the issue of sin, but especially um, sex and sexuality. We tend to hide. So this next question is really important. I want you to name two people besides Jesus that you can talk to about sex and sexuality. I want you to name two people besides Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where you could talk about your urges, your longings, your desires, as well as brokenness, pain, and shame. And why do I say two? For those who are dating or married, it's easy to state that your partner or spouse is that person. But I believe you need a few people to process, particularly when there's questions, struggles, or desires, desires, unmet desires, or regarding your partner or spouse. 
this means that your partner or spouse may not be the best place to process what you want for your marriage or what you want one day for marriage. So think about that. If you're listening to this right now, take a pause. You know, I was processing this question with Courtney, and she loves knowing that I ha- I have, she knows the name of the people that I can talk to about this. I have two guys in my life I can talk to about this. I can talk to her about a lot of these things, but she loves to know that. And um, it's good for me to know that she has someone, too, to talk to about this. And yes, without going into overgeneralizations, Pornography, lust, fantasy can look the same and it can look different um, for men and women. It just can. And um, women, my wife brought up some good thoughts that like just as men can be caught into these uh, lusts and fantasy through the cultural modes of uh, the physical body. And I don't really need to go into it, but um, the fantasy that comes with having power. I, I think women need to, this is my wife's words understand how getting affirmation from other people, particularly men, whether that's at work or in other arenas um, where you're showing a lot of attention, just need to be aware of those things. We all need to be aware of um, the media that we take in and how sometimes shows can demean a wife or a husband and have this other person come in and seems perfect. So yeah, I just, um, probably that was clear as mud, but both men and women need to have a few people to process our urges and longings, our lust and fantasy. And as we consider the call to social sexuality, we, the big thing is to be more sexual, not less. The gospel heightens our need for community. We are called to pay attention to our bodies, our passions and cravings, not to bury them. To, to bury our passions is bad teaching. God came to save our bodies. It's about having a resurrected bodies and the the, the Bible promises like resurrection, souls and bodies. That said, our passions are meant to be directed, or in this case, if we're fallen, redirected to God. God is the one who created our desires. He's the one who fulfills them. God is the one who fulfills our longing and urges. And one way, just one way to practically prove our longing and our search must lead us to God and not anything less is that even when you have a secure marital commitment of love where genital sexuality exists, there will be days, there will be months and even seasons where our seemingly primal sexual urges are not fulfilled. Certainly not completely, sometimes not at all. Many marriages are having little to no sex, which can be just as tragic as those trying to find their longings fulfilled in premarital or extramarital sex. I don't know if it's just as tragic, but it's tragic. If you find yourself in that place, we need to share. Find safe spaces and places to share, to be free and without shame. Homily number two, how do we experience wholeness in this conversation about sex and sexuality? We need to talk vulnerability um, with our brothers and sisters about our own issues regarding sex. I'll say it again, as God's children, our identity in Christ. We need to talk vulnerably with our brothers and sisters about our own issues regarding sex. We need to enter into social sexuality. And here's how do I know that. Jesus talks about it. He talks about it in community, on the Sermon on the Mount, where people are listening. Shouldn't we? 
What does Jesus say? You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, as a few of you may know, there's a couple of groups going on where we're reading uh, this book called The Good and Beautiful Life. And I found this chapter, um, I'm saying this in my own opinion, to be a bit dated. Uh, I, I think there's truths there that are fairly transcendent, but I, I, that's why I appreciate more current vocabulary. And uh, there is a contextual nuance I find very helpful as James Brian Smith, the author of that book, um, exegetes or unpacks Matthew 5 here. He, he says that Jesus is using um, an exaggerative hyperbole to reduce the argument regarding sex and lust to its logical absurdity. This exaggerative hyperbole is, is a Latin term, reductio ad absurdum. When Jesus talks about gouging on our eyes and cutting off our limbs, he's using a rhetorical device. That's the reductio ad absurdum. And it's a commonly held notion at that time that that sin resides in some part of the body. You steal, you cut off the hand. If you look at someone lustfully, you're gouging out the eye. And, and Jesus is making very clear that if this was true, everyone would be bloody stumps. Everyone would have no limbs and blind eyes. Why is Jesus making this um, exaggerative hyperbole? Why is he using this rhetorical device? Well, Jesus knows that lusts and objectification resides in the heart. It is a heart issue. It is a heart issue for men and women. What's not noted is that Jesus' time, lust was directly primary. I'm sorry. What's not noted is that Jesus' time, uh, lust was directed primarily towards women to the obvious point of injustice. The statement is a statement of justice against the oppression of male power while at the same time letting his audience know that God must change the hearts, not hands and eyes, in order that everyone, men and women, can conquer the compulsion towards sexual medication of a deep pain, shame, and loneliness. It's a justice issue and it's an everyone issue. If everybody has a story, and we do, everybody has a story, some of the implications of this is that, and we don't want to miss this, collectively, power they say um all sin leads us, is about sex and all sex is about power i don't know about that but we have to understand power does lead to sexual injustice power leads to sexual injustice and the examples today are rampant it's not just pornography uh it, it is that it's it's pornography it's rape it's trafficking it's murder it's the kidnapping into pornography and, and many, if not all women, feel a really very real sense of terror just by being a woman. There's a real sense of terror just by being a woman. We have to realize that. And collectively, we have to understand that. And then individually, we, we have to understand we each have varying degrees of sexual brokenness by our very participation in our broken world. We're all shaped in society to believe that our sexual desires must be relieved. Our lusts, which are really just coping mechanisms, create false relationships, which actually deter our ability to have real relationships. We act out in lust, thereby destroying the lives, our lives of others, and destroying our eyes and our ability to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The call is not to mutilate our bodies, 
but to expose our hearts, to talk about our hearts in a safe, covenantal community. That's what the church is designed to be, a covenantal community. To provide a safeguard for people to be naked and vulnerable with their pains and brokenness. You know, um, my first year of marriage is uh, in order to pursue um, continued sobriety and not acting out. I recall a weekend where my um, wife had to get away and I just was in a very lonely, um, stressed. I think we are um, just in the early bits of marriage, which comes with its own stress. It's difficult early on. It's also fun, but it's very difficult. Marriage is great and it has its trials. And this was one of those seasons where um, I was going to be alone for a weekend and I just knew I didn't want to be alone for the weekend. So I called a friend of mine. I was like, hey man, will you just stay with me this weekend? Come crash at my place. Um, his name's Mark. And I was like, I just need you to stay the weekend. And he was there. He stayed with me. Mark's single. He's still single. Um, he's one of the most self-giving guys I've ever met. Sacrificial. And he stayed the weekend. And I got to just share with him some of my struggles. And uh, yeah, just talk with him openly and vulnerably about life. And that's, that's one of the key points here is that when we learn to lean on others, particularly confess with others, to share our brokenness as well as our triumphs, no doubt, we actually fulfill the longing <laughs> that originally made us, in some cases, fall short or act out sexually. Does that make sense? That when we confess with others, we share our brokenness, we're actually filling the urges we have towards um, acting out in genital sexuality. Pretty wild. That's homily number two. All right. How you doing? We hanging in there? Good. Let's segue into homily number three. How do we experience wholeness in this conversation about sex and sexuality? One of the greatest ways, or some of the greatest, I probably should put some, some of the greatest ways out of sexual brokenness is to seek the healing of others. All others. Fight against systems of sexual injustice and efforts towards committed marriages, whether we're married or not. The greatest ways out of sexual brokenness is to seek the healing of others, to fight against systems of sexual injustice, to effort towards committing marriages. It's to have a greater yes that is able to compete with the later yet, um, sorry, lesser yes of acting out sexually. To have a greater yes that's able to compete, basically to supersede the lesser yes of acting out sexually. Those I trust are not people who've done it perfectly, lived up perfectly sexually whole life. I just don't know that person, by the way. But it's those who've done the hard work of seeking wholeness for themselves, who also in turn seek the wholeness for others. Rich Volotis, again, from his great book, um, The Deeply Formed Life, he says, as we, as we consider, um, well, I'm saying this, as we consider being a safe person for the sake of others, he, he brings up a very helpful juxtaposition. If someone confesses uh, to sexual sin, what if instead of responding, hey, you must repent, you must repent of this vile sin, we would do better to first appreciate the role addiction plays in survival. And, and this, as he states, can feel like blasphemy. It can. But he also notes that our sexual addiction is our best 
attempt to survive. In fact, our addictions, whether it's sex or other addictions, are our best attempt to survive. Yeah, it does lead us to brokenness, the pain of sickness and death. At the same time, it's a signal that we long to live. We long to live. We do better to appreciate the role addiction plays. And rather, instead of saying, just stop it, just repent, we can say, hey, you figured, you figured how to stay alive. You've learned how to soothe your pain, but this way doesn't go deep enough. Let's try another way together. You have figured how to stay alive. You've learned how to soothe your pain, but this way doesn't go deep enough. Let's try another way together. I think that's a lovely way to handle someone who's caught in sexual addiction. For now, we're going to spend our last few minutes talking about divorce. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in addition to naming the injustice that men were able to initiate a divorce in their day, which isn't necessarily true in our day, but it's worth naming, Jesus is also naming that Christian divorce, and really all divorce for that matter, is contrary to the heart of our faithful, pursuant God. Matthew 19, Jesus, I quote this a lot at the end of, of weddings that I do, and I've probably done, I've done a good amount of weddings. Jesus quotes uh, Genesis 2.24 saying that two have become one flesh. And what God has brought together, let no one person separate. What God's brought together, no person should separate. And as I think we, we read about Jesus given this qualification for sexual immorality, uh, that word sexual immorality is translated pornea, which typically translate into a sexual encounter outside of the marriage bed. I have tension with that. I just need to name that because uh, I've experienced a few people who have used um, that as an out to get out of marriage. Well, he's, this person was caught in pornography, and so now it's time to get divorced. And um, there's a lot of layers to that, and I'm not going to go into that. Um, but this idea of divorce, giving even a caveat to it, it's more of an exception than a hard and fast rule. There are numerous marriages that have, by the grace of God, survived extramarital affairs and have been an agent of healing for the sake of others. That's what marriages are meant to be. I think even as you consider God, who we are called the brides of Christ, we are meant to be married to God, to be union, to be in union with God, to be one with God. That's Jesus' prayer, that we would be one. God pursues us. God pursues us when we're unfaithful. God pursues us even when we're unrepentant. And our marriages are meant to reflect that. So what do we do with divorce as it happens in the church? Well, like I stated in the beginning, we want the church to be a place that welcomes all walks, especially those who've been hurt by divorce or previously in, uh, who were previously in non-Christian marriages. But we want to be a space for all people to seek healing for all parties. Lastly, to fight for all people, our singles, our marrieds, our divorced, and our widowed. And I do think there's a final word for those who are married or want to be married. Two of the greatest dangers in marriage is what bookends this section of divorce. One is lust that we've talked about, confusing genital sexuality 
for our need, a really neo, a real, very real need for social sexuality. The other one, and we're going to talk about this next week, is lying, to live dishonest lies. If you're addicted to one and or the other, especially as it pertains to your marriage, please consider seeking a third party to pursue honesty and recovery. There is a better way to survive. You've learned how to soothe your pain, but this way doesn't go deep enough. Let's try another way together. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story, but that's not the end of the story because every story is redeemable. Every single one. We carry shame. We all carry shame. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers good news for those of us who are carrying that shame. Just as we carry shame in our bodies and in our minds and in our hearts, Jesus received and carried all that shame on the cross. That frees us from shame. Romans 8.1 says, Those who are in Christ, who've named him as Savior and Lord, their leader of their daily lives, there is no condemnation, no shame for them. We all want to hide. We want to hide from each other. Hide in our nakedness, and our shameful nakedness. But Jesus was hung naked on a cross so that we could be clothed in God's righteousness. We all feel alone and powerless, but because of Christ and the gift of the Spirit he gives up on that cross, we have a community and a power not of our own that helps us to take steps towards healing through confession to find a better way to survive. And with that, I would commit your life to Jesus. Receive the healing he has for you in all areas of life, knowing that everybody has a story and every story is redeemable. And the way that we're going to respond today is to take communion together.